When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Purpose of your visit? I'm going to see Bruce Springsteen's hometown. I can't think of a better reason to visit the United States than to see the home of the boss. A bit of the trailer for Blinded by the Light, one of the titles playing this year's Chicago Critics Film Festival, and one of the two films playing the fest about the transformational power of classic rock. Maybe time to update our top five classic rock moments. The 7th Annual Fest runs May 17th through the 23rd, and among the titles it's featuring are some of the most buzzed about independent movies of the year. This week on the show, one of the event's programmers will join us to offer up the top five or so fest flicks to have on your radar. Plus the late Stanley Donnan's Two for the Road with Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Film Spotting. I'm guessing we have a few listeners out there, Josh, who are the type of cinephile that likes to follow news coming out of Sundance in January or maybe Austin South by Southwest in March. They're hearing the buzz about this or that title. Well, some of those titles are making their way to the Chicago area as part of the lineup for this year's Chicago Critics Film Festival. We're going to highlight some of those titles worth checking out. For us, it's basically a short list of the movies we should be considering for our Golden Brick Award. This is our annual award for the overlooked film of the year. And if you look back at Fest history, you'll see that past Brick winners Columbus and The Fits both had their Chicago premieres at the Chicago Critics Film Festival. And then last year, another Brick nominee, Madeline's Madeline, played the Fest as well. This is a festival that's curated by Chicago critics who are on the festival circuit, so they've been out there earlier this year seeing some of these things. They see just a ton of stuff, and for one week every May, take over Chicago's Music Box Theater program, about 15 features along with a handful of shorts, and these usually constitute some of the best stuff 
that they saw at those festivals. This year's fest runs May 17th through the 23rd. We're going to share the top five titles we're most excited about. And we've got Chicago critic, one of the programmers, Steve Procopi, our good friend, to tell us about this year's lineup. He hasn't seen all the movies but he's certainly seen a lot more than us, Josh, because our total combined is zero. We'll have to make up for that at the fest itself. <laughs> we will. We will also wrap up our Stanley Donnan Marathon with 1967's Two for the Road. Any chance Albert Finney is going to salvage this marathon for you, Adam? Great chance. All right. Great chance. We will also hand out our Donnan Marathon Awards, which... We have a great name for based off one of your comments last week, Josh, in defense of charade. We're calling these awards the fizzies. I like it. All that later in the show. But first, what are we looking forward to the most at the Chicago Critics Film Festival? Let's see if Fest programmer Steve Procopi agrees with our picks. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? The trailer and the plot for Danny Boyle's Yesterday. Also the answer to the question we referenced at the top of the show. The other movie playing this year's Chicago Critics Film Festival about the transformative power of classic rock. I'll go Beatles and classic rock. That, that works for me. Sure. We now welcome on to the show a fellow member of the Chicago Film Critics Association, but unlike us, one of the Chicago critics who is one of the programmers of the Chicago Critics Film Festival, which begins May 17th at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago. We're pleased to have our good friend, our old friend, Steve Procopi, back on the show. Steve, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me again. Of course. So we're going to get into the titles we're most anticipating. We're going to hear some of the titles you're most excited for people to see because you've seen a few of them and mm -hmm. you have some that you are also anticipating. That's in a sec, but want to start as we usually do, just looking at the big picture here. Anything different about this year's lineup or about the fest in general as it's entering its seventh year? Did you guys approach this in any different way or have any new bells and whistles you want to share with the world? Honestly, if that ever happens, I don't know what I'd do. Uh, no, it's it's a it's a real simple, effective formula that seems to get more and more people interested in coming every year. Uh, it's just uh, a group of critics, pr not just the programming team, but anyone really, any critic who has seen a film at a festival or just somewhere that they think is worth spotlighting in this way. And we kind of pick the best. We cherry pick the best from Sundance and Toronto and South by Southwest. And, and some are just submitted to us. But yeah, it's, it's just, we just want to give the best selection we can in a week's period. And if, if you care anything about movies and you don't show up this week, you have no one to blame but yourself. <laughs> well, you guys have settled into your home at the Music Box yeah. now for a couple of years here. So that's Every a year but the first setup. year. Yeah, this yeah. is the seventh year. So it's only the first year we weren't there. And the, the selections just keep getting more intriguing every year, I have to say. I remember last year was a powerhouse lineup, and, and this one looks really strong, too. I think the only thing, there is one thing different this year. And it's we've only ever done this once before, but the, the film you're talking about yesterday about this kid who gets knocked on the head, who's a big Beatles fan, he gets knocked on the head, and there's some cosmic incident that erases the Beatles from history, except in his head, and he pretends to have written all those songs and becomes hugely famous. None of us have seen, none of the programmers have seen it. And I don't know anyone that's seen it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's played a festival yet, but they offered it to us, and we trust Danny Boyle, and and I heard the music might be good, so uh, we thought we'd we'd give it a shot. And I think only once before have we ever shown a film sight unseen. So, well, Boyle has a 
pretty good batting average, yeah, I'd say. I'd so. say so. Probably the biggest title that's playing the fest, maybe other than Alien, mm-hmm. which is going to be part of this year's lineup. And I don't think any of us probably included it in our top five. Maybe a little bit unfair. We tried mm-hmm. to go with films that the whole world hasn't revered for 40 years. But tell us about the decision to show Alien and how you're going to have one of the film stars there. Yeah, it was, uh, again, it was an idea that I believe was presented to us by Fox. They 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 came to us, and this was just before the merger uh, finalized. Uh, but uh, I think we're still showing, as far as I know, we're still showing it. Uh, Disney hasn't pulled the plug on us. But no, it's it was just, it seemed like it was almost too good to be true to get offered something like that. And they are giving us a 35 print, which I hear is beautiful. And they, they sort of asked us to sort of if we could, if we wanted to get a guest and, and we dug around. They did not give us the guest. We had to sort of seek somebody out. And thankfully, Tom Skerritt, 80-some-year-old Tom Skerritt is going to be there. We sort of have a history with bringing very old men into this thing uh, between uh, Dick Miller a few years ago. The late Dick Miller came yeah, in a few right. years ago. And William Friedkin we had in our first year. And uh, last, or one year we had Barry, the, again, the late Barry Crimmins was there, the comedian. So, mm-hmm. uh, But yeah, we're going to we, – we bring him into the theater, make him climb those stairs up on the stage and – Hope for the best, but I'm I'm incredibly excited. We're actually playing a short film too that same day that he does something in. Uh, I don't know if it's just a voice thing or if he's actually in it, but he's involved somehow. So you can actually get a double dose of Tom Skerritt. So all the titles we're about to list can all be looked up. You can get more information about them mm-hmm. and buy tickets to see them. Again, the fest starts May 17th by going to what website, Steve? ChicagoCriticsFilmFestival.com or the Music Box Theaters. Our website as yeah. well. Yeah, we will also link to mm-hmm. that in our show notes over at filmspotting.net if you go there. So let's dive into some of the titles. And the way we're going to do this is kind of rapid fire top five, and then we'll go back, see where we have common ground, where maybe people have some unique choices and share a little bit more information about them. Josh, what are the top five movies at the festival that you're most excited about? If you could only see five of these films, these are the ones you go to. All right, here we go. At number five is Them That Follow. This is a drama set among a Pentecostal sect that involves snake handling in worship. At number four, I have Light from Light. Pretty wild concept here. A single mom who has prophetic dreams meets a recent widower who thinks his wife is haunting him. Beyond that, how about the fact that the stand-up comic and actor Jim Gaffigan is in it? He's also in Them That Follow, by the way. I did not realize that. Okay, huh. so. Smaller two, role, but yes. He's actually Jim... Olivia Coleman's uh, husband in that movie. So yeah. Interesting. <laughs> All right. Heavy on the Jim Gaffigan here at the start. My number three, Our Time Machine. Here's one that's a golden brick potential candidate. A haunting, magical, autobiographical stage performance featuring life-size mechanical puppets. That is put on for an aging father suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Really intrigued by that one. At number two, I have The Farewell. A lot of good buzz about this title. And I'm also intrigued that Aquafina is in a more serious role here as a Chinese-American reluctantly visiting family in China. My number one, we've mentioned it on the show a couple times this year, The Nightingale. I mean, when a filmmaker's debut makes my top ten list, as Jennifer Kent's The Babadook did in 2014, you better believe I want to see her follow-up. Yeah. So I can't believe how much overlap we have on this <laughs> list, Josh, because there's only one title that doesn't match, and we have some of the same placement, too. I had Light from Light in that number five slot, and I want to point out that, as we set off the top of the show here, this is kind of fertile ground for the film spotting Golden Brick. So I was keeping that in mind as I was making my list. We've had some past winners that 
played at the fest, went on to win that Brick Award. And I'm looking for filmmakers whose names don't immediately jump out to me, who have maybe made only one other feature or some shorts, but otherwise are unknown to us. And Paul Harrell certainly qualifies the director of Light from Light in my fifth slot. I had The Farewell, directed by Lulu Wang, another potential Golden Brick candidate. And here's where we have our time machine in the third slot together. The key line from the plot synopsis, of course, that stood out to me was, through the creation of this play, the two men confront their mortality before time runs out and memories are lost forever. So come on, art informing our lives, that blurring of art and real life, and of course, mortality. I mean, it's like they made this documentary for me. My unique choice compared to you, Josh, is Pink Wall at number two. The director is Tom Cullen, who was a co-star of the movie Weekend mm-hmm. back in 2011. First time writer-director here. And I'm going to read you the description. It's a modern-day romance following the six-year relationship of Jenna, Tatiana Maslany, and Leon, J. Duplass, intimately told through defining moments along their journey together. The film explores how both friendship and resentments grow as the pressures of adult life confront them. Maybe it's because of talking about Two for the Road and Stanley Donnan this week. I'm thinking about movies that look at relationships in an interesting way and jump around in time a little bit and focus on these moments. That's Pink Wall and... At number one, I have The Nightingale as well, director Jennifer Kent. Steve, how did we do? (laughs) Actually, pretty good. I have some of those on my list. My number five actually is not on either of your lists. It's our opening night film, uh, St. Francis. It's one. I think it's our only local production by a a local director, Alex Thompson, written and starring Kelly O'Sullivan about a woman who's sort of in a crossroads in her life in terms of getting older, possibly having a family. And she gets a job as a nanny for a lesbian couple and doesn't think she wants kids, really. And I won't – there's something going on in her life that I really won't get into. But it's just a, it's just a really nice little it, – it's not like heavy drama, but you can see lives changing in the course of this film. And not just her life, but the little girl who's a wonderful new actress. So, I yeah, I, and they're going to the, – the director and the writer and star are going to be there opening night. My number four is Light from Light, which, although it is a new director, you should know that uh, Elizabeth Moss and David Lowry are producers on the film. Mm. So he has some, because he's made a few shorts, he has some some backing. Yeah, some familiar, and one other feature, Something Anything 2014, which I did not see. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, he, oh, that's right. He, this is his second film. You're right. You're right. It is his second film. But it does remind me in certain ways of Ghost Story, not in the ways that, because it is about someone who who has a connection with the, the the spirit world through these dreams that she has. And, but it's not a haunting kind of film. It's a really wonderful personal story and, and a character study uh, of these characters. Is and, there pie? I don't believe so, okay. no. So another I difference. Don't but I'm not saying there's not dessert. Some form. My number three is also Pink Wall. You, you've done a pretty good job. I, we should mention— Well, I was just reading what someone else wrote. I know, I know. But I'm saying that—, that uh, we should mention Tom Cullen and Tatiana Maslany we'll and Jay Duplass will all be there. I just always get curious when a Duplass name is dropped in anything. So I'm, with I'm, you. I'm sure. always like, I'm always thinking it, there's going to be something there. Uh, my number two is Yesterday uh, for reasons we've already gotten into. That's strictly speculative on my on my part. And uh, my number one is actually Blinded by the Light, which I think you mentioned earlier. Um mm-hmm. I saw this film at the again at the world premiere at Sundance. 
back in January, and I am a diehard Bruce Springsteen guy, okay. but that's not the reason I love the film. In fact, it's probably a reason I would have been critical of it if it had been bad. It is not – and it is about – it's a true story or based on a true story about this guy who went on to become a journalist, a Pakistani kid growing up in outside of London and who just had a horrible life in this working-class pit of a town. And a friend of his exposed him to Bruce Springsteen's music who and he wasn't interested in hearing it. And suddenly the world opened up to him because he felt like Bruce was singing to him and – What's interesting about it is not discovering Bruce Springsteen. It's not a commercial for Bruce Springsteen. It is an endorsement about the power of that music can have on us, like that singular moment where you hear an artist for the first time and it changes your life. And now that the trailer's out, I wasn't going to even bring this up, but it's in the trailer. When he hears these songs for the first time, the words of the song sort of pop up around him, like Mm -hmm. on the sides of buildings or in the air. But... Not all the words, just certain words, because that's how you hear a song the first time. You don't hear the whole song, Mm -hmm. but certain things stick out to you that just invade you. And this kid is just hearing his life reflected back at him in, especially in some songs from like, this takes place in 87, 88, but it's, so it's like Born in the USA and Darkness on the Edge of Town, like these little slightly grimmer songs. And it just completely changes the course of his life. And the story, we're going to have the star of the film and the director, who's the the woman that directed uh, Bend It Like Beckham. Yeah, Gurinder Chadha. Right. And and she, I mean, she's a joy from the Q&A that I saw. And I can't wait for her to tell the story about getting to use this music and how it happened. Hmm. Because it's a once-in-a-lifetime story that nobody else in the history of movies is ever going to have an opportunity like the one they had to use this music. So it's a great story. But I, I really encourage people to come see that. Yeah, yeah. that sounds like if it, if it connects with people, it could be this it's word a of little, mouth yeah. breakout hit. It, it, it's a li- there is an element of cheesiness to it, but only just because he loves this so much. And you're just like, you know, you know people like this who get fixated on an artist and just become obnoxious about it to a certain <laughs> point. But that's this guy. And but man, it, it's, it could not be, you know, it's it just wins you over. There's no, there's no right way to say it. Yeah, I'm very intrigued <laughs> by that film. I've seen a couple other Chata films that yeah. I've enjoyed. We will list all of the titles that we've mentioned so far over at filmspotting.net. If you click on lists at the top of the page, you can find this one. If you need to remind yourself of any of the films that made our top five, I do want to dive into a few of the other titles, Steve, that maybe intrigue you. I'm sure Josh may have an honorable mention or two. One for me that definitely stood out is In Fabric, which comes to us from director Peter Strickland. He made Barbarian Sound Studio and also The Duke of Burgundy, which was a Golden Brick nominee a few years back. And He's a filmmaker who loves to use color, and that's what I think about when I think about either Duke of Burgundy, especially Barbarian Sound Studio. And if you read the plot description about a woman who, and I'm going to be grabbing some phrases here, a woman who is fitted with a perfectly flattering artery red gown, which in time will come to unleash a malevolent curse and unstoppable evil. And then you also see words like, well, it's kind of funny, too. Okay, I want to see that. All true. I want to see that. It is, and be warned, it is one of our midnight movies, and it's there for a reason. Yeah, Saturday, May 18th at midnight. So in Fabric 1, I am keeping an eye on. Any other titles for you guys? Well, you mentioned Our Time. You both mentioned Our Time Machine. Yeah. Your instincts are correct. This is one of the best things we're playing this year. It is going to tear you to pieces, 
it's so good and and it's a and it's a race against time too because the guy who's staging this play who's who's more of an artist than a playwright but he takes years to to do this and meanwhile his father that he's doing this for is losing his memory as we go and it it really is like a race to get this thing staged before his father's memories completely vanish and the whole thing is it's beautiful it's heartbreaking you, you couldn't have written it any better than it than it plays out here yeah, it sounds like it could be draining but i'm, I'm still definitely yeah. up for it i think i'd throw out an honorable mention uh greener grass there's two directors here jocelyn DeBoer and don luba i'm not sure if i'm saying that correctly but We've gotten a ton of suburban satires, of course, but this one, I'll just read from the description, sounds a little different. Deliciously twisted comedy set in a demented, timeless suburbia where every adult wears braces on their straight teeth, couples coordinate meticulously pressed outfits, and coveted family members are swapped in more ways than one in this competition for acceptance. How did I miss that plot description? (laughs) How did I overlook that? You know, hitting on some familiar themes we've seen in suburban satires, but sounds like in uh, some new ways. Absolutely. Interestingly enough, we played the short film that these two women made a few years ago that this is based upon. We played it a few years ago. So this is, I think, the first time we've had somebody back whose short we played that they then turned into a feature. very cool. We're we're becoming that old. Yeah. (laughs) Any closing comments or recommendations? Let me me throw out an odd one uh, called Olympic Dreams. it's uh, and forgive me, I don't have the names down of the, uh, but it's uh, the, the woman who's the star, I believe, also had a hand in writing it, and she was actually an Olympic athlete in South Korea a couple years ago, the Winter Olympic, right? The Winter Olympics, and the whole film is shot during the Olympics. I mean, it was actually shot while she was there. Her character, at least, doesn't advance very far in her sport. So she just ends up hanging out in the Olympic Village with all the other athletes, all of whom are real athletes. And she becomes friends with an American who's there, who's a volunteer dentist who's played by Nick Kroll. And they just sort of have a funny, weird little relationship. It's part comedy, but it's also, again, about about her heart and her heart being broken and she her being in a place where she this might be the last time she's at the Olympics. Mm. Uh, and she, so she's a little heartbroken about her placement. Uh, that's not a spoiler. That that happens like in the first 10 minutes. But it's a really cute, wonderful little movie that, that moved me more than I'd expected it to, uh, especially with Nick Kroll in it. I wasn't yeah. expecting that. But it, <laughs> it, it, it's it's playing on Sunday at 2.45, uh, Sunday the 19th. And if you're just looking for something different, it is very different. And the, and the idea that – and I think it was actually – Money, like there was money set aside for like an artistic fund during the Olympics to make, to do things with. Really? And that's what they use. Because you see in the credits, it's like an, an Olympic artistic fund or something like that. And I was, I was genuinely surprised. I wondered how they got all that access. Sure. But it was actually not clandestinely made. It was made legitimately. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Well, based on that title and several others you've heard, there's no doubt there's a ton of film spotting golden brick potential in this year's Absolutely. lineup for the yeah. Chicago Critics Film Festival. If you want a chance to see all of these movies early, well, this is your shot. ChicagoCriticsFilmFestival.com is where you can get all the information you need, including how to buy tickets. And speaking of tickets, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be film spotting. It wouldn't be Steve Procopi appearing on film spotting if we didn't have some free passes to give away. 
Josh's number one most anticipated movie of the fest, my number one, and in your top five. It wasn't right? in my top five because I knew I wanted to make this something special. Okay. <laughs> so, no, it didn't there make the top go. five. But highly anticipated <laughs> Very by much all so. of us. Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale, the follow-up to The Babadook. If you want to see that movie for free at the festival, you can do that just by emailing Filmspotting. Give us your name and put Nightingale in the subject line, and we will pick 25 winners at random. You'll get to bring a guest with you. So 25 pairs to see The Nightingale. The star of the film, by the way, Aisling Franciosi, will be there. I want to be completely transparent. The night of this, the 19th, is also the night of the Game of Thrones finale. <laughs> so if you're planning on watching Some programming, that, <laughs> Steve. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, and, But now that being said, this this actress was in Game of Thrones. So if you want to meet someone from Game of Thrones, you can come out to our festival. That's what DVRs are exactly. for. That's what On Demand is for. You so can't like, <laughs> DVR the Nightingale, but you no. can Game of Thrones. Yeah. Come out and see it and maybe see it for free. That is Sunday, May 19th. Email Feedback at filmspotting.net with Nightingale in the subject line for your chance to win. Steve, thanks so much for coming on. Thank Always you a treat. Very much. Thanks, Steve. Up next, results for the film spotting poll. We asked you to pick the most promising summer 2019 drive in double feature. And then, sadly for me, maybe a relief for Adam, we conclude our Stanley Dawn and Marathon with 1967's Two for the Road. Stay with us. If you're feeling fancy free. Wander through the world with me And any place we chance to be Will be our rendezvous Two for the road We'll travel down the years Collecting precious memories Selecting souvenirs I can do this. I know you can. I am experienced enough to do this. I am knowledgeable enough to do this. I am prepared enough to do this. I am mature enough to do this. I am brave enough to do this. That's the U.S. representative for New York's 14th District, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in the new doc, Knock Down the House. Directed by Rachel Lears, it follows four first-time female candidates who ran primary challenges in 2018, Ocasio-Cortez most notable among them. Knock Down the House had its debut in January at Sundance, picked up by Netflix, and showed up there on the platform last week, where, Adam, you were able to fit it in. What'd you make of this documentary? Yeah, really liked it. Definitely recommend it. It's a fascinating story of a movement that I wasn't aware of. Of course, generally aware of a progressive movement to make Congress more diverse, but more specifically, even though the movie doesn't devote a lot of attention to this, it shows how these candidates got started. And there's this group called Justice Democrats, among others, who set out to find these types of candidates, people who maybe had never thought about running for office before or getting into politics at all, but could potentially make a difference. Of course, that includes women like 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Can we just call her AOC from now on since that's how everyone refers to her anyway? Sure. Okay. Go ahead. So we do get a little bit of that in those campaigns getting started. There's also these four women and their own fascinating stories. In addition to AOC, it's Amy Vilela, Cori Bush, and Paula Jean Swearingen. And it's interesting, for example, to watch Swearingen at an early rally where it's more formal and she's behind a podium and she's got prepared remarks and there's a lot of passion and there's a lot of anger behind what she's saying, but it doesn't really connect to me anyway as a viewer and didn't really inspire at all. And then when we get scenes of Rachel Lears, the director, following Swearingen out in West Virginia in her native state among her family and friends and the citizens that she hopes to represent – And she couldn't be more natural, but also electric and inspirational. And there is a personal and emotional reason driving every one of these campaigns as well that really gives this movie some weight. It's clear that these people aren't in it to be politicians. As I said, they're in it to actually fight for people who need to be fought for. And this is more of a topic for people who have seen the film. But the whole time I was thinking about Lear's storytelling approach, what she envisioned when she began filming how that may have evolved based on circumstances. I'll put it this way, Josh. AOC is the beginning of the film. She's the end of the film. She's the middle of the movie. And she's most of in between. And look, she's not only a bona fide political star at this point, she won. So it makes sense that her story might get more time. I am still wrestling a little bit with whether or not the other women deserved similar treatment and more time Hmm. to match AOC, or if Lear's made a justified storytelling compromise for a greater good. The same way documentarians have to make difficult decisions with their material all the time. I watch it with my daughter, Sophie. She really enjoyed it. She found it empowering. And it did leave me thinking about people I would really like to see this movie. And let's face it, people who are already predisposed to disliking AOC are not going to watch this movie. I don't have any hope for the MAGA crowd out there to fire this up on Netflix and decide maybe they had AOC all wrong. But I'm thinking about people like someone in my life who I talked to a few weeks ago, who is older than me by about 30 years, and who could accurately be described as probably leaning conservative, but also hates Donald Trump and is not a person who is sitting in front of Fox News every day. He's capable of rational, intelligent thought. And we have a lot of great conversations and I have a lot of respect for him. And AOC came up in conversation. We were having a larger political discussion. AOC comes up, and what does he say? Well, she's just crazy, Hmm. he says. And, of course, then that prompted some more back and forth. She is crazy in the sense that she's someone who is shaking the foundations of things, who, when you see her in this movie, get as indignant and rightfully so as she does and stand up with that fury, but also that reason behind her, you can see how that shakes some people up, how that, how that is problematic to the establishment and to certain people in our population, they may see her as some kind of threat. I would love for anybody out there to think, well, she's crazy. And again, her, her policies too are radical. I understand that. That's one thing to say, well, I think it's a little crazy that she believes X, Y, or Z, but it's dismissive in a way, of course, that makes me wish that he and lots of people out there like him would watch a movie like this and see who these people are actually as people. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is 
to make an assessment like that, you're basing it on evidence you're getting from some news source of some sort and yes. maybe short video clips, whatever. The hope is that a documentary like this, while acknowledging those elements that may allow for such images to be manipulated, also gives you another side of her or more of her. And it sounds like it does on that. end. It absolutely does. Okay. All four women, even though. She's definitely the main focus. Yeah, and you mentioned the word empowering. I imagine if you want that to be an element of your project, you're almost going to have to eventually focus on the quote-unquote winner. Mm -hmm. It would take a lot more finesse. I'm not saying it couldn't be done to show those other women who didn't necessarily win their elections but yet also revealed a form of empowerment. That would take a lot more finesse and skill perhaps it is – I can see what you're saying. It does seem like the, the easiest route would be to go with the winner and how that would be empowering yes. to focus on that. Yeah, for sure. So again, I'm just curious. It's fodder for discussion whether or not that was something she was always sort of keyed in on, meaning she might have recognized, like any filmmaker, any documentarian realizes they've got a star. Yeah, what the time frame was in terms of the actual win. And yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that would be fascinating. All of those out. elements. But it's absolutely worth seeing. Knock down the house on Netflix now. Next week on the show, we have a plan in place, one we're excited about, though it's going to require some work. I definitely have a few blind spots here. I don't know if I'm going to get to all of them that I'd like, but we are going to reflect on the career of one Keanu Reeves. We're going to do our top five Keanu probably moments or scenes as we like to to drill down in that way. We could, of course, talk about our favorite Keanu characters, but I think that will probably be a big part of the discussion. Yeah, for sure that will be. But I did put something out on social today just asking people where they would go if we ended up doing okay, scenes. Okay, I didn't see that. Big response. On? So scenes, I said, if we were okay. to do scenes and um, some recurring themes, which, of course, you might nice. expect. Some outliers, which I definitely want to try to track down now. But, yeah, people seem excited about it. So I think this is a good way to go. I don't know if we've said this enough, but we love it when you do the heavy lifting for us. So please... <laughs> On social media or email, tell us all of your favorite Keanu Reeves moments or scenes, and we might just steal them. Of course, inspired by the review we have planned for next week, which is John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum. My notes here from Sam point out, I'm not sure why, but he is educating us that Parabellum is the name of a German make of gun from the Latin Parabellum. In the phrase, C. vis pacem. Parabellum, if you want peace, prepare for war. Now, my favorite part of this is Sam felt the need to spell out as best he could the pronunciation of C. Vis Pacem, as if I didn't wait until my senior year at Grinnell to fulfill my foreign language requirement and had to sit through two semesters of Latin every day at 10 a.m. for two semesters. Impressive. No Spanish for you. Nope, nope. Because Spanish required two years. So I thought I was taking the easy way out. Guess what? It was not the easy way. Just like John Wick, he doesn't take the easy way. No, and he also has what all good movies now require, a three-part title. Yes, that's true. I love it. (laughs) We go back to Hobbs and Shaw, presented by Fast and Furious, (laughs) whatever that title is. I also just saw a note a day or two ago, Josh, that Her Smell, a movie we just reviewed Two weeks ago on the show, maybe yeah. three weeks ago. Feels like it. Now, is now being released on all digital platforms this weekend. So as anyone is hearing this, it is available. It's also still playing, I'm guessing, in some theaters around the country. But if you heard us talk about it, give a glowing review to it, and you heard me say, 
it was my favorite film of the year so far. That is still true. Even after seeing Avengers Endgame for a second time. Did knock it out, huh? Did knock it out. Her smell is still number one. And our friend Sam, the producer, feels the same way about it. So if that's enough to entice you, you should be able to access it. That's very cool. I mean, I hope it doesn't mean that it's not performing well enough in theaters. Because as we talked about, the theatrical experience for this would be great. I think both of us saw it online via screener and Mm -hmm. kind of lamented that fact. So if it is playing in a theater near you, um, jump at that chance and then maybe watch it again wherever it's streaming. I want to give a quick note of thanks before we move on here to a longtime listener from the very beginning. He told me, Greg Milliken, he's vicar at Grace Episcopal Church. I recognize the name. Yeah, I bet you do. He goes back a ways. He definitely does. He invited me to speak last Sunday at Grace Episcopal Church and did a Q&A on the book Movies Are Prayers. And he's doing a really good job with this Q&A. And I'm thinking, you know, even for a vicar, this guy's really smooth. It turns out Greg had a former career not all that long ago in marketing in Hollywood for big studios Hmm. and spent a number of years doing that. And as, you know, people are often want to do goes right from that into the ministry. Sure. So. <laughs> but the folks at Grace Episcopal Church were so kind, so welcoming. If you live out that way, way far southwest of Chicago, and you're looking for a community, check them out. Hmm. Really good people. So I just want to throw out there as Josh is making his church tour that, you know, <laughs> we are a pair here. This can be a double act. I play multi-instruments, okay. and I'm happy to accompany Josh at any of these church visits. I mean— Assuming the pay is good. I didn't think about the instrument factor. I do not bring that to the table myself. Maybe music is prayers, Josh. Yeah. Did you ever think of that? Yeah, I think I think we could easily go that way, Adam. So you write that one. Okay. We wanted to mention that if you are in the Chicago area, in addition to seeking out a new religious community, you can occasionally see free movies, thanks to us. We have admit two passes to a May 15th advanced screening of All Is True. This is the movie that came up in our summer movie preview last week. Kenneth Branagh directing, and he's playing Shakespeare. Judy Dench plays his wife, Anne Hathaway. It opens in limited release a couple days later on May 17th. Again, that advanced screening is on the 15th here in Chicago if you would like to enter to win passes to see that. I'm very eager to see it. I was hoping that I would get a chance over the weekend because I would be prepping for my interview with Kenneth Branagh. This was teased a little bit last week. It was not a sure thing, but it seemed like it was going to happen. You cursed it. In fact, at one point, I think as of last week on the show, I didn't say it, but it was confirmed. I had a confirmed interview. And then the schedule changed, as these things sometimes do, and it fell through. And it's unfortunate because longtime listeners are aware of this, How many times Henry V came up on top fives before eventually getting put in the penalty box? But Branagh really is one of my artistic heroes. And that's because a lot of the reason I'm even sitting here right now, I can pinpoint back to being a senior in high school and taking a lit class and having a great teacher who introduced us to a ton of great literature that got me into thinking critically and and comparing plays and literature to film. And we read a lot of Shakespeare, but one of the early ones was Henry V. And I fell in love with the text and wrestling with the text. And that was only heightened when he made us watch Branagh's version of that film, his interpretation of it that came out in 1989. And that then took it to another level where I was engaging with the material. So Branagh's always been a hero of mine. 
and maybe that will happen at another date. Did you tell the publicists all this? I mean, did you spill your guts and say how important this would be to you? I didn't. And I was going to tell Ken that he kind of owes me one because he had a film that came out in 1995, a very little film. That when it was released in the States and nobody really saw it, they changed the name of it. I think they changed it to A Midwinter's Tale. It was called at the time in the UK, it was In the Bleak Midwinter. And he wrote it about a troop of actors, I think performing in a church, Josh, who are putting on Hamlet and all the follies that come with that. And he had that movie's UK premiere in Belfast, where he's from. And I flew there. I was in London at the time studying. I got on a plane and flew to Belfast to be at that premiere, where... I actually did meet Kenneth Branagh and have his autograph. I'm sure it's vivid in his mind. Is that where he said you could call him Ken? (laughs) It is. Oh, good. (laughs) If you want passes to see, all is true. We're going to get back on track here, Josh. You can do that by entering over at filmspotting.net slash events. Filmspotting.net slash events. Last week on the show, we also did play a little massacre theater, the part of the show where we act out a famous scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. If you missed it, here's a bit of that massacre. You're going to tell me to stay away from your girl? Well, if I had to do that, she wouldn't be my girl. Huh. Well then, I guess you got nothing to worry about, do you, Francis? How are entries going so far for that one? Pretty low so far. The hat is not brimming. And maybe it's the names. You heard our rendition there, and we threw in a different name. There was a method to my madness with those names, but maybe not enough to really give away a hint. If we had used the actual names, the hat would definitely be brimming because everybody in the world would have known it, whether or not they've even seen the film. They probably would have known. Maybe it's also because before we played that, I couldn't even remember what we had massacred (laughs) So it must, maybe not our best maybe rendition. Not, maybe not the most memorable scene. No. Okay. Well, if you do recognize that massacre, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, May 13th. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it on our next show. Christian says that you've got some special thing planned. Yeah, it's like a crazy nine-day festival. It only happens every 90 years. That's the trailer for Ari Aster's Midsummer. Aster, of course, the director of last year's Hereditary. And Midsummer is looking like another exercise in cultish horror, this time, though, set in sunshiny Scandinavia. It's one of the most anticipated movies of the summer, especially by me. But is it the kind of thing you'd want to see at the drive-in? A couple of weeks back, we asked you, what Summer 19 drive-in double feature would you pile in the car for? So Sam noticed that some interesting pairings were falling on opening weekends together this summer. And so he gave us these options. Beginning on May 31st, we'll get Godzilla, King of the Monsters, along with Rocketman, the Elton John biopic. Then on June 21st, it's Toy Story 4 and Child's Play. Moving to July 3rd, we have Spider-Man Far From Home with the aforementioned Midsummer, And then lastly, August 2, it's Fast and Furious Presents, Colin Hobbs and Shaw, paired with the New Mutants. All right, Adam, how did it come out? In last place, the correct answer. What I revised to the correct answer after we initially debuted this poll, August 2nd, Fast and Furious Presents, Hobbs and Shaw and the New Mutants, only 10%. Yikes. Yikes. I don't understand that. I don't either. 
May 31st in second to last, Godzilla, King of Monsters, and Rocket Man only getting 19%. The runner-up, June 21st, Toy Story 4 and Child's Play, 22%. But Midsummer and Spider-Man Far From Home on July 3rd, taking it all with a whopping 48%. We heard from Mason, who left this comment on the poll. We encourage you to always leave a comment when you vote. There is one movie in all these pairings that I want to see, but the other is something I have zero interest in, except for one, Spider-Man and Midsummer. Ari Aster's follow-up to Hereditary? Yes, please inject that into my veins. And the follow-up to one of the better MCU films with Jake Gyllenhaal as the villain? Yes, again. I know we're just coming off Endgame, but I think Spider-Man will be a good palate cleanser from the emotional ride of Endgame. Stephen Hill says, when answering this question, I posed another to myself. Which of these double features reminded me the most of my drive-in days? The answer was Hobbs and Shaw and New Mutants. Action movie paired with a superhero movie with horror overtones? Yep, that's the ticket. There you go, Stephen. Rob Steger said, I haven't had good experiences with drive-ins of late. A combination of bad sound and uncomfortable seats. I wound up watching Sausage Party from the back of an SUV with my head tilted so I could see the screen between the two front seats. Yikes. And when we went to see The Magnificent Seven, my friend's batteries ran out from his boombox, and we wound up listening to the sound from the devices of the people around us. Did this comment come from 1987? It might have. Rob continues, as much as I want to see Midsummer, I think its mood will be too delicate to stand up to such trials. But Godzilla and Rocketman both look like sturdy entertainment that I'll be able to enjoy, no matter what technical difficulties befall me. Sorry, Europagans, I gotta go with the giant lizard. I mean, Rob is really onto something there, though, and that's why I amended my choice to go away from Midsummer and Spider-Man, thinking about watching a horror movie. You brought this up when I said it incorrectly the first time. Watching a horror movie, especially what will probably be a fairly well-crafted one that relies so much on sound. Yeah, all the technical elements. Yeah, those technical elements aren't going to translate well to a drive-in, whether or not you have a working boombox, <laughs> as if that's something anyone uses anymore. So, yeah, you need something loud, bombastic, absolutely insane and silly, and Hobbs and Shaw is probably the answer. But we have another one here from Ethan McElhinney who says, Godzilla is the Elton John of monsters, and Taron Egerton proved he has the singing chops and sing, so let's go to the drive-in. Oh, boy. One more comment here comes from Sarah Welch Larson. She's right here in Chicago. Unrelated. Uh, yes, unrelated. Thank you. O-N. Yes. So, no relation at all. I've never seen a Fast and Furious movie, she says, but I'm here for Hobbs and Shaw based purely on the Bonkers trailer I saw the other day. I saw that too. I think before Endgame. It's a great trailer. Bonkers is a good word for it. We have a new poll question for you, a simpler poll question, or maybe in its simplicity, it's actually much, much tougher. I think I know how I'm voting. In a couple of weeks, we're considering a return to our year-by-year countdowns with the top five of 1979. So a suggestion from Sam, we haven't declined it yet. We don't have a good alternative yet, so we might be going down this path. We have done this pretty much every year starting with 2004 because the show started in 05. So we have, let me do the math, carry the one, 14 years of top 10 lists, but we hadn't revisited all the years prior to the existence of film spotting started with 04 and went back and we kind of were just going chronologically. Now we've been dancing around a bit, depending on whether or not we've got a good movie, maybe a sacred cow or a blind spotting to tie into that year. 1980 is still on the to-do list as is 1979. This would of course though, mark the 40th anniversary of films that came out that year, including 
Ridley Scott's Alien. And this is a tie-in to our Chicago Critics Film Festival as well. That's really what inspired this. Tom Skerritt's going to be there, as you heard Steve Procopi say. And I'm sure that's going to be a big hit for people to see Ridley Scott's film on the big screen. I'm on board. Let's let's do this one. I just honestly, I hadn't had a chance to sit okay. down and look at the 79 titles. A lot of titles. It's a rich it's a good year. year. And I feel like I have it fairly well covered with a little bit of homework. I can get my hands around it. So yeah, I'm on board, especially when you look at, we'll get to some of these other titles that did come out in 79, in addition to the two that make up our poll question. Yeah, the two that are there though, Sam has narrowed it down to the two A titles. Is it Alien or Apocalypse Now? Now I'd throw in all that jazz, but we'll just go with Alien or Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now in the film spotting pantheon, deservedly so. Alien, not in the film spotting pantheon, I don't believe, even though we did give it the sacred cow treatment a, a few glowing years back. sacred cow a review. A glowing so sacred cow review. And it probably should be in the pantheon. If you don't like those two options, you can go with others. Sam has listed what some of those options are. Look at this list. Hal Ashby's being there. That's with Peter Sellers. There's one I'll have to catch up with. Me too. But I know it's held in incredibly high esteem. Monty Python's Life of Brian. Kramer versus Kramer, The Warriors, all that jazz. I'd also have to see that. I don't know if you want me to, Adam. No, I don't. I mean, stay away from it. Because okay. if you don't like it, the show will end. Breaking Away, another film that came out in 79, Manhattan from Woody Allen, The Muppet Movie, The Black Stallion, Star Trek, the movie, and then Tarkovsky's Stalker. I mean, I've got... yeah. I've got a top five, a clear top well, yeah, five me too. right there, including the poll options. So what a year. What a year. It's going to be really hard, and it's going to be a lot of work considering a few of those titles. You said being there, a blind spot for me, an egregious one, because I've seen a fair number of Hal Ashby films and really like his work. Another big one, because I know how much you love it. In fact, I don't want to spoil your top five, but I've never seen, or at least I don't remember seeing. I remember it being on as a kid sometimes, but I can't recall anything vividly from it the black stallion oh watch that haven't seen it the younger ones yeah it's okay it'll be on my list we'll put it on tap for this weekend and then i don't know if i have the strength as much as i enjoy well enjoys maybe not the right word as much as i revere tarkovsky's work stalker is a major blind spot so a lot of great 79 films that i've seen it can make a really good list from but some great titles I need to catch up with still. I'll say this about Stalker. As much as a Tarkovsky movie can be accessible, I think of those that I've seen, that's one of them. So so it's not, it, it's not as much heavy lifting mm-hmm. as you might be expecting. I am going to say this, because maybe it will encourage more people to vote one way or the other, but Sam has slacked me approximately 72 times about the fact, since this poll first went up in our newsletter earlier in the week, that Alien is beating Apocalypse Now. Does that surprise you? Yeah, it surprises the hell out of both of us. It's Apocalypse Now. I'm not shocked by that, actually. Okay. I, I feel like Alien has become much more, and this is just because the franchise continues, part of the cultural conversation. Um, Valid. But I'm not saying that because I have a clear choice between the two. I don't have an answer for you right now. This is really tough for me, those two films. I'm leaning Apocalypse Now. Okay, well, that's... Where I'm going, we would love to hear from you. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Just ordered all that jazz from the library. Oh, it's on God. the way. It's just the Maurice. He's managed to persuade you that it's absolutely imperative that we get to Santa Fe by the day before yesterday. Why do you always get taken in? No, baby, that's how it is, okay? You want me not to work? Is that what you want? 
just wish that you'd stop sniping. I haven't said a word. Just because you use a silencer doesn't mean you're not a sniper. We're not going on like this for the rest of our lives. Albert Finney and Audrey Hepburn in Stanley Donnan's Two for the Road from 1967. It is the final film in our Donnan marathon. We started with a couple of musicals on the town and funny face. Last week it was the fizzy, frothy comic murder mystery charade with Hepburn and Cary Grant. We end it with Two for the Road, a non-linear relationship drama about a couple's 12-year marriage. The comparisons to the before trilogy are unavoidable. And Nathaniel Myers, the professor in South Bend, did not avoid them as he starts us off the way he has throughout this entire marathon with these thoughts and setup. I can't believe we've already reached the end of another marathon. Betty Garrett, Fred Astaire, Cary Grant, Albert Finney, and Audrey Hepburn times three. You might just say these marathons have all the joy and heartache of a long-term marriage. And so it was with this week's film, Two for the Road, which, as you noted in your review, Josh, is like Linklater's Before Trilogy all wrapped up into one movie. And while I agree that it may not quite be as good as those films, one of the advantages it has over them, I would argue, is its ability to weave in and out through different points along the timeline of their marriage, the result of which is, at least for me, a treasure trove of both aesthetic delights and emotional heft. In terms of the aesthetics, the film functions almost as a masterclass in editing, where transitions are triggered by lines of dialogue and emotional beats, animated through graphic matches, and transported from one automobile to the next to the next. It's savvy and fun, but it's also impressive just how densely packed the film becomes by way of its very structure, rich with visual and linguistic rhyme. All would be for naught, though, if the film didn't also emotionally rhyme, if moments from Joanna and Marcus's marriage weren't continuously imbued with the weight of its own history. It's because of this weight that, although the film includes moments of light romantic comedy, it often feels more agonizing than romantic, though it's also because of that weight that the romance when it does come is all the sweeter. And of course, the film's most affecting stroke is that by the end, the romance and the agony are completely wrapped up in one another, and what's left is the messiness of the relationship and the ache of that messiness. So, Josh, Adam, did you two ultimately enjoy or at least appreciate the journey you took with Joanna and Marcus? Or, given the option, would you rather have embarked on another trip with Jesse and Celine? And to be clear, in true film spotting fashion, you must choose one or the other. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Nathaniel, for that. We will hear more from the professor as we get into our Don and Marathon Awards at the end of this discussion. Certainly, it's hard to talk about this film without thinking about those Linklater films and thinking about that trilogy. If I'm choosing between them, I'm choosing Jesse and Celine, but fortunately, nobody has to make this choice except in Nathaniel's sadistic fantasy. So I'm just going to pretend like that question doesn't exist. But all three movies in that trilogy, of course, are films that show us the varied states of coupling. And here they're compressed into one movie. And I actually would throw out there, I'm not totally clear having watched and really enjoyed Two for the Road exactly what stages we see and what the timetable is. I'd have to go back and watch it a second time. We certainly get when they meet and there's a later time where they are married but don't have a child. 
there's a later time than that where they are still married and the child is with them and is on the road with them. But then we also see what I believe is the present day. There's at least a fourth instance of their marriage where they have that child, but the child's not with them on the road. We only hear a reference to her at one point calling on the phone. So there's at least four different stages in this one versus the trilogy that Linklater gave us. I would argue, though, I'll throw this out real quick for fans of that trilogy, that Joanna and Mark from Two for the Road are actually in Before Sunrise, the first film, in a way. They could be the German couple. Do you remember how that movie opens? They could be the German couple who has been married, I think, 15 years. When that film starts, it's their fight that prompts Jesse and Celine to engage with each other. Well, so that's my question for you. Do you know when in Two for the Road you— you made the connection to the Linklater films because for me it was during their bickering and was that's, it really? that's what I thought of. I didn't think of Jesse and Celine. I thought of that you older thought of that couple. couple. Wow, yeah. no, I don't think I made the connection until I started seeing just how much it was going to dance around in time. Okay. And once I realized we were going to get that past mixed with how they met and as they're touring the countryside, it does certainly come to mind. But I'm thinking about that fight. And as Jesse and Celine witness it in Before Sunrise, they don't ever say it explicitly, but the subtext of the smiles they share before they start talking to each other is basically what kind of people can sit there with only those words to say to each other, right? (laughs) Which would be a variation on the refrain we get here of what kind of people sit there and have nothing to say to each other. It's kind of like Jesse and Celine are saying, I'm never going to be like them. They don't know that they're going to be in a relationship, but I'll never be like that with my partner. And that's kind of what, at least initially, Joanna and Mark are saying as well. Nathaniel, as he often does, said it really well. Treasure trove of both aesthetic delights, and it is primarily for me those wonderful transitions between scenes and time periods, and emotional heft, or at least as hefty as Donnan gets, which isn't necessarily a lot. But here, for me... This was everything we've seen from Donnan so far in the previous three films. Everything you might want, or I think most of us would want from a Donnan film. The fizz, if you will, Josh. We get these bold and often a little goofy artistic choices. But for me, not at the expense of the other elements that we talked about in some of those other reviews. So, for example, here we have Hepburn as Joanna, who is easily the most complex character we've seen her play there's still that moment donnan seems to adore where it's her who has to express her love for the man first albert finney almost can't be bothered with her i mean he's kind Mm -hmm. of interested but he doesn't seem that interested until she's the one who makes the explicit advance but she never subjugates herself to mark she even makes a choice to take another lover late in the film here that reflects her agency she also this is undeniable gets to be sexual in a way that The other movies simply can't allow. I think about Charade. All the kissing fits in that movie can't match, for me, the single image of Hepburn's bare shoulders under the covers when you know that they've clearly made love on what is basically their first night together. That's risque stuff for 67. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. The central romance I've complained about so much with Cary Grant being paired with Fred Astaire finally works here and also doesn't work. And I don't mean in terms of storytelling. I mean in the way real relationships do and don't work. Their disdain that we see is matched by their delight for each other. You actually get the sense with Finney and Hepburn here. And because of the writing, for better or worse and truly worse sometimes, they recognize that the only other person, and we see it, the only other person who can bring them that sense of delight 
is that other person, that they are somehow meant or perhaps doomed to be together. It felt real to me in a way none of the other Don and efforts have. And I know that's not what he's going for, but one of the ways we see it here is in almost every case where the movie could go for sweet, where a character has a chance to say something that would be satisfying for us as viewers, partly because we think it's what the other person wants to hear, the character doesn't give them that. The character doesn't say that. There's a moment of harsh truth instead. And I really respected that about this film. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you like this, uh, even though it's probably towards the lower end for me of the films that we've seen. I still enjoyed it as well. Glad that it could get you fully on board enthusiastically. And yeah, you're right. There, There's um, a willingness to embrace the bitterness. For me, that was the distinctive to Hepburn. I mean, I, I thought she was plenty sexy in charade. So that wasn't a surprise to me that that was kind of doubled down in a way here. But I was surprised the way she she used her wit as a weapon more than we'd seen before and and most often against her husband um, once they get to that stage in their career. So there's a real kind of a curdled bitterness while she still has that charm and she still has the movie star qualities. There's an acidity to it here that there wasn't before. And I appreciated that as well. Uh, To answer Nathaniel's cruel question, Yeah, I'd prefer the before films as well. I think each of them individually is a stronger film than Two for the Road. And for me, it probably comes down to I wasn't quite as convinced of the realism here in the relationship as you were. I agree they're going for something completely different than Donnan was in any of the other films. So it definitely has that element to it. And there are moments that work that way. But I did think that the performances, there was a prescribed nature to their relationship that came down on the film from the structure. I'll get to what I loved about the structure, the transitions, as you and Nathaniel have, have already praised. You're absolutely right. Those are just brilliant. But just breaking things up this way and making us jump around, each scene had a prescribed element to it that made it feel more beholden to the screenplay than maybe to real life. And definitely when you hold it in comparison to um, the before films where there's just this improvisational elegance that Hawk and Delpy have, that again is maybe not something Donnan is going no, for. No, very here. different so, film. A very different film in that way. Uh, but why? that's you know why I would prefer those if I had to make such a choice. But man, those transitions, the, the one, and I think Nathaniel touched on this, but the use of the vehicles. Right. As time stamps. Mm-hmm. So that eventually... That's really the only way you know where you are. Because it's well, not the, the hairstyles. It's not so much the hairstyles. The hairstyles the are... But, but it, she... The vehicle really pegs it, though. The costumes get wilder they as do. we get further into the 60s, which is kind of fun. But yeah, those those cars, and they're great cars, too. The color, the choice of color for those cars is another Don and Touch. And so then there are a handful of times where we do get a transition without a cut. So we're in one time frame car goes by, we know when when we are, and then we see behind it, coming down the same road, a car from an earlier era. Yeah. And, and they share, the time-space continuum collapses in just this perfectly dawning way, a, a light, colorful touch that kind of messes with your head in the moment, is also delightful, and, and at the same time is saying some really interesting things that this movie shares in common with the before films that time 
can be a long-term relationship's worst enemy. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's nothing, you know, whether you think he's too much of a cad or she's too sharp and, and maybe they shouldn't have gotten together. What they're mostly fighting against is time uh, and that they've been with each other this long and have not found ways to keep that relationship fresh for each other. For some reasons we explicitly see, for some we surmise. So I do think the way the movie elegantly traverses those times, takes us from one to the other is absolutely, you know, the clever edits, the match cuts, all that stuff yeah. is the crowning achievement of Two for the Road. Yeah, it really is. Here, that artistry, that frivolity at times, I think is totally functional. And that's what I really appreciate about it, how it serves the story and does offer that emotional weight, as you said. I'm not sure if that's the very first one or not, but the first one I really remember where it resonated is that one where they're walking down the street. I think it's when they're a younger couple and there's a cut, but we still see them in the shot, but we also now see a car whiz past them. The next cut is to inside that car. It's now them at a different age inside that car. Elegance, right? It's absolutely there in that moment. And it did kind of blow my mind the first time it happened. And he's going to make use of that. Donnan is throughout the rest of the film. But that is what a marriage is. It's a shared history. It's a collection of moments that are always with you and consciously or unconsciously sometimes informing all of your interactions. So I think the time hopping here and the way the editing serves it is underscoring that in a way certainly that really resonated with me. Also, I think about how audacious that choice was to be this nonlinear back in 1967. I recall coming across something that I think I read in a Guardian article about charade when I was preparing for last week's show. And they had a phrase in there about how it was the last gleam of the golden age of Hollywood. In my sense, I didn't have that experience with the movie. It felt to me more like The Last Gasp. It was it was a relic of another time that didn't quite know how to transition into the new Hollywood. And you watch a movie like this, and it feels like a vanguard. It's transgressive in several ways, including, obviously, in the way it's structured and the cutting that I think are really surprising for its time. I'll have a little bit more on that as we get into our awards, because Two for the Road is definitely going to come up again. But one of the choices I wanted to highlight, you mentioned match cuts, and this for me is one of those fizzy moments, but it really worked for me here. And I actually thought about it for my favorite Donnan moment because of the way it seems to kind of sum up his approach to filmmaking. And it's where we see Mark and Joanna at one point watching another couple squabbling through a cafe window. Oh, yeah. They're going back and forth. And at some point, we no longer see Mark and Joanna. We only hear them talking in that moment as they're watching them. And it's this dialogue they're having about, you know, what could they be fighting about? They don't understand what they're saying. I think it's in another language, but they're watching very animated, going at each other. What could they possibly be fighting about? And then the camera stays on that fighting couple while we only hear Joanna and Mark. And I think they might even be talking from another time period now, but their words are matching up perfectly in sync with the couple on the other side of the window. I think what they're doing is initially imagining the couple's argument and play acting it. And then you're right. I think we segue from I think their playing along right. to them to their actually actual having an argument. And exactly. That's, yeah. Just another example. It's not like Donnan found a trick for jumping from time to time and repeated it. We get new little inventive segues like that throughout the film. That's it. It calls attention to itself. Certainly it's Donnan kind of winking at the audience, letting us know that he knows 
that we recognize how clever he is, but it does reinforce this idea of constants in relationships, regardless of languages or locations, love and its many splendors and its sorrows is universal. And I love that touch. One of my favorite scenes. So did you find at all that some of the touches were a little much? And it probably sounds odd for me to say this because I've come on, Mr. Fizz. I've been defending all the flourishes, but it's almost there are a lot of manic zooms here and swerving swish pans. And I'm talking independent of the transitions. I think Mm -hmm. elegant is the right word to use for those transitions that seem very planned out and thoughtful and purposeful. But we'll also get moments here where suddenly the camera swings somewhere or or there's a, a quick zoom in on something. And I almost wondered if he was missing making a musical and like trying to make up for it um, with these elaborate uh, little flourishes that for me didn't quite work. And I also wanted to ask you about the Henry Mancini score, because I know you didn't like the music in Charade very much, Mm -hmm. Mancini's music, but it's very different here. I found it almost too melodramatic and, and at times undercutting. I still consider this a comedy for all the serious things we're talking about. I think it runs as a comedy. I agree. And the music for me kind of worked against it. No, didn't have a problem at all with the music here, though I might have been distracted by the editing for the most part. I don't remember, to be honest, I don't remember the swish pans. That wasn't a distraction for me. I do remember the zooms. And for some reason that worked for me because it fit into this scheme of kind of locating these people in time. I can't articulate it any better than that, but sometimes the way we're going through these different time periods and finding these characters in that moment, the swish pans kind of focusing in on them and searching for them, it it reinforced that. It worked for me. Any other thoughts about Two for the Road or you want to get into our awards? Yeah, we can head to the awards. We'll probably touch on some things here and obviously in the other films as well. Yes. So these are five categories, as we always do. Our favorite supporting performance from the marathon, our favorite lead performance. We'll have a moment that seems to sum up the entire marathon. Of course, our Don and moment. And then our favorite overall scene or moment from these four films. And finally, our favorite picture, Nathaniel, will rejoin us with his picks as well. We start with supporting performance, and I'll list a few of the candidates here. I guess it partly depends on how you classify some of the people from On the Town, such a large ensemble. It's maybe hard to say any of them are a lead performer, though maybe Gene Kelly. Yeah, I would, would say be he's probably the, the lead. star of that film. Some of the others then who would qualify Frank Sinatra as Chip, Betty Garrett as Brunhilde Esterhazy. And I just wanted to say that because it's so fun to say. Ann Miller as Claire, Jules Munchen as Ozzy, Vera Ellen as Ivy Smith. We have Kay Thompson as Maggie Prescott in Funny Face. And then three of the bad guys who are fun to watch in fairly small roles in Charade Walter Matthau, James Coburn, George Kennedy. Did you go with anybody from that list or? Did I miss someone, Josh? Yeah, there's someone from that list I went with. I think all three of us probably. Okay, why don't we hear from Nathaniel then? Okay. Let's hear it. For supporting performance, there are probably a handful of worthy candidates, but my gut tells me it's Betty Garrett, and I'm going to go with my gut in this case. She's a film-spotting discovery for me, so perhaps that gives her the bump, but through her character Hildy, she all but commands the action of On the Town. Her enthusiastic and easily excitable personality is part of the reason for that command, but so too is the way she looks out for the other women in her group. I think you could argue that the film's bittersweet undertone is largely thanks to her, as she's the one who senses most keenly Time's winged chariot. Yeah, had to be Hildy. Just had to be uh, the cab driver who picks up the sailors and (laughs) serves as their chaperone for their 24 hours in New York. Have we, I don't know if we've mentioned on the show that... 
producer Sam Van Holgeren loves this character. Loves the character. So much that his youngest is named well, after her. We do need to clarify because I called him out on this too a little bit. The name choice was reinforced, reinforced. by On the Town, okay. but initially inspired by the character Rosalind Russell plays in His Girl Friday. That's well, the Hildy. Th- okay. You can't what, go wrong That's a one-two way. punch. It I is. mean, <laughs> reason enough. So, yeah, it's not, though, just on behalf of Sam, then. I'm making this pick. Any performer, for me, any performer who's going to make Sinatra blush by being the sexual aggressor deserves some respect, especially for a 1949 musical. I just think Garrett injects so much life into this movie. Her spirit drives everything forward, often literally. And uh, I had to go with her. I did Mm -hmm. think about Kay Thompson in Funny Face for reasons I'll get to in some of these other picks. But yeah, Betty Garrett's Hildy gets my vote. Hey, lady, faster, please. Yeah, come on, lady. For you, anything. What's your name? Huh? Oh, uh, Chip. Chip, huh? Bet you can't guess mine. That's ridiculous. There are over two million girls' names registered. All right, you win. It's Esther Hazy. Brunhilda Esther Hazy. Well, pleased to meet you. Why don't you come up to my place? What? Look, Chip. I've been waiting for you all my life. I knew you the minute I saw you. You're for me. I like your face. It's open, you know what I mean? Nothing in it. The kind of a face I could fall into. Kiss me. Please, Miss Esther Hazy. Just call me Hildy. Why don't you ditch these guys and come up to my place? Uh, look, lady, I hardly know you. I've only got one day in town. I want to see all the famous landmarks of the city. Stick with me, kid. I'll show you plenty. Hey! Hey, here it is! Yeah, you guys are both right on this one. The way we're introduced to that Hildy character, it'd be easy to see her as a complete joke and think she's going to be treated that way throughout the rest of the film. And kind of a sad joke, too. She's this quote-unquote old maid taxi driver who's trying to trick the young Navy boy into, if not fall in love with her, at least come to her place and sleep For with the her, afternoon. Right, yeah. And possibly in the hands of another actress, she might have remained merely funny and pitiful. And instead, with Betty Garrett playing her, she is one of the more poignant and interesting and fun characters in the film, without a doubt, instead of being the joke She's so in on the joke that you cannot help but love her, so we're in agreement there. We'll see if that agreement holds over as we get to our next category, the Donnan Award, the Fizzy, for Best Lead Performance. And, you know, Audrey Hepburn, she's got a pretty good shot at winning this one. How do you pick between Joe Stockton in Funny Face, Regina Lampert in Charade, or Joanna Wallace in Two for the Road. You have her three male co-stars. Fred Astaire as Dick Avery. Cary Grant as Peter Joshua and Albert Finney as Mark Wallace. Let's see which way Nathaniel went. For me, lead performer comes down to one of the two lovers of Two for the Road. Young Albert Finney is a revelation to me, but I'll admit there are times his performance can read a bit flat. And I'm not even sure I'd say Hepburn's performance is pitch perfect. But as you mentioned last week, this Dawn and Marathon has almost doubled as a Hepburn Marathon. And in this movie, we once again are witness to her limitless charms, but also to the fading of those charms, to someone more than a little hardened. Donnan once said that he felt he, quote, never got to the deepest part of Audrey. But in Two for the Road, I'd say he got the closest. Two for the Road for Nathaniel. I think that's fairly certain where you're heading as well. I'm going with Funny Face, though, with Joe Stockton here, the intellectual bookshop clerk turned Parisian model. Now, that phrase, 
the fact that she made me only half raise my eyebrow, that that was happening in the movie, <laughs> that that transformation took place, I think it's part of the reason why I chose this performance. She sold that for me. Uh, it's just a matter of star power overcoming questionable characterization. And if Joe does sacrifice some of her intellectual life here by dancing away with Fred Astaire's older photographer, I think we can all admit that she somehow still does it without really sacrificing her identity. It's still the witty, sharp, charming Joe in those final scenes. She hasn't, she hasn't really become someone else. Um, and I should probably say it's still the witty, charming and sharp Hepburn. Uh, she's just someone who's made space in her life for supposedly frivolous things like music, parties, taffeta, that sort of stuff. Hmm. I think some of us could use more of that in our lives. So I don't entirely see Joe's character arc as one of submission, probably because I don't think Hepburn does. That's not how she plays it. That's why she sells it. So I just love Joe in Funny Face. Some people need that more in their lives. Why were you looking at me when you said that, Josh? Well, you're the only one here. So we're in agreement, all of us, on Audrey Hepburn, but I'm going to agree with Nathaniel on Two for the Road. And despite your certainty, I was positive. If you would have asked me two days ago, three days ago, or even actually about five hours ago where I was going for this category, it was Hepburn and Funny Face, actually. And then when I actually had to justify it, when I found myself trying to come up with the reasons to convince the world listening and myself— why it was her performance as Joe Stockton I thought was the best, I realized that I couldn't do it. I couldn't pull it off. I had to go back to Two for the Road in her performance as Joanna Wallace. Nathaniel had a great pull, that quote from Stanley Donnan, about maybe never getting to the deepest part of Audrey Hepburn in his movies. Nathaniel suggesting in Two for the Road he got the closest. I agree with that. I think it's the deepest overall performance, the one that asks the most of her and does, as you heard me lament, I think, last week when we talked about Charade, this movie makes her a flesh and blood woman in a way I don't think the other roles really do. Funny Face, though, and Hepburn's performance in it are going to get their due here shortly. So nice. I'll still find a way to give her her proper due. That brings us to our favorite Donnan moment. Not necessarily the best moment or scene overall from the marathon, but the one that in a way seems to sum up his style and approach to filmmaking and his marathon the most. Let's hear Nathaniel's choice. This is my one opportunity to talk about charade. So I'm going for the scene that most stands out to me, the funeral scene. They play the comedy in that scene very broadly, and man, did the performers mug for that camera. But Josh, you rightly suggested, I think, that the film is less interested in the characters than it is in the performers. And while you were referring primarily to Hepburn and Grant, I believe, I agree with Adam that one of the absolute highlights is seeing James Coburn and George Kennedy make their grand entrances. It's all very, very thin, but it's also got enough character to make it stand out. So this idea of choreography that you can kind of see in that scene, I think is one of the things that I really appreciated about it. Donnan almost stages it like a dance scene, right? They, these guys come in and they each have their movements that have to say a ton about their character because of the first time we've met them. And we talked about it when we reviewed it. One of our favorite, one of the funniest moments in that film, I think we both agreed. I thought about little details when it came to this category, little flourishes that captured Donnan's effervescent style. So things like the kaleidoscopic credits of Charade, or how about that fluttering Givenchy wedding gown that Hepburn models in Funny Face? And that other moment in Funny Face where Astaire spins her on a stool during the title number? These were all considerations. But I went with 
a little touch in the end from Charade, which this might be more Hepburn than Donnan, actually, considering it feels very improvised. Also, I would argue quite sexy, Adam, even though this isn't two for the road. We'll see. We brought it up during our review. It's that moment she interrupts Cary Grant, just touches the dimple in his chin and coos, how do you shave in there? Yeah, I love it. It's great. And, you know, it took me out of the movie in a way that you could say is distracting, but it brought me somewhere, honestly, I would rather have been just watching Audrey Hepburn flirt with Cary Grant. That's what was going on there. I was okay with that. I think those are the sorts of things Don, and even if Hepburn served it up to him, knows that's what he's after. That's what he's going to put in this movie. And so when I think of a Donna movie from now on, I think I'll probably, moments like that are what will come to mind. Parts mm-hmm. that are greater than the whole to the point of almost making the whole irrelevant for, for a movie hmm. like Charade, at least. So after I jotted down all the candidates for this category and then later all the candidates for favorite scene from the marathon, I thought, well, I just wonder if I'm missing something obvious. And I went to Google and typed in like best Stanley Donnan scenes. And that didn't really help me. But one of the links that came up, one of the first couple was actually from the Chicago reader. And Drew Hunt wrote, I think in 2014, a quick five movies from Stanley Donnan to see. And I think you ranked him as his top five. Somehow singing in the rain was number three. Interesting. Behind funny face at number two and two for the road. At number one. But he said something in this little blurb that I thought was really appropriate for this category. When you think about these Donnan moments, he said, It's an exceedingly stylish film and perhaps a bit showy at times, but that's Donnan for you. The unabashed aesthete, unafraid of appearing gauche for the sake of self-expression. I love that. The unashamed artist so determined to express himself that he's willing to appear a little bit awkward, a little bit unsophisticated at times. And... No scene better encapsulates that for me than a match cut we get in Two for the Road that he kind of sets you up for with a little bit of misdirection. They are at kind of a beach resort later in their marriage. And if I'm remembering the scene correctly, Finney or maybe it's Hepburn claps to get the waiter's attention. Oh, yeah. And the waiter comes over and then one of them remarks, wouldn't it be great in real life if you could just clap and everybody would disappear? And knowing the type of movie we're watching and these incredible transitions between time periods and the playfulness of Donnan, surely anybody watching it is expecting that then when we watch her clap again, it's going to take us to some new place in time or something magical, magically real is going to happen in that moment. And it doesn't. Instead, the waiter just says, oh, do you need me again? And it doesn't work. But then that scene ends with the camera focusing on basically the waiter's midsection as he approaches the camera, and he's got a platter with a bright red lobster on it. And then Don and Match cuts from that seemingly bizarre shot that in some ways kind of breaks the fourth wall. It completely takes you out of it for a moment. It's like he's showing the platter to the audience in that scene. Cuts from that to Joanna and Mark on the beach asleep sunburn from head to toe looking just like (laughs) the lobster on the platter what filmmaker much less does it what filmmaker even thinks about doing that cutting to sunburn bodies from a shot of a lobster that is absolutely inconsequential to the scene and of course it's a little bit functional when that moment does happen in that transition they are alone 
on the beach in that scene as they wish. It's so showy. It's a little bit clumsy and it's absolutely silly, but it feels like one of those kind of personal Donnan choices. Yeah. And another example of how didn't just find one way to jump us around that's clever and keep going back to that, but always looking for a new little trick. That's something new to give us. Okay, then our favorite scene or moment overall from the marathon. Nathaniel's got a great one. It was my runner up. My best scene from this marathon is the opening number of Funny Face, Think Pink. Think Pink. Think Pink when you shop for summer clothes. Think Pink. Think Pink if you want that Kelka shows. Frankly, you could consider this one of the fizziest scenes as well, except that I think it offers a kind of mission statement for the rest of the film, and as such almost gives substance to the fizz. Style is a way of being and a habit of mind in Funny Face, and Think Pink declares it from the outset. When the film itself breaks into a montage of pink advertisements during the song, it's as if it has bended to the will of the great Kay Thompson and her flourish of pink fabric. For me, nothing in Funny Face, and possibly in this marathon as a whole, tops this opening scene. Well, it's my turn to be in agreement with Nathaniel. Indeed, think pink. My favorite scene from this marathon. I did consider that experimental sequence in On the Town where Kelly recreates the movie's plot up until that point in this interpretive number. There's no singing in it. But my sense is that that's maybe more Kelly. He co-directed On the Town, while a number like Think Pink just feels more Donnan to me, at least from what we've seen in this marathon. It is the opening number, and we have Kay Thompson's fashion magazine editor just declaring Pink to be the new black. Love how she kicks it off, throwing that roll of fabric at the camera, breaking the fourth wall again, as you were talking about, and then leads everyone through this rollicking redecoration of the corporate offices. Really nice touch here, too, are all the stage tableaus that interrupt the singing and dancing, freeze frame camera tricks that make magazine advertising art come to life. So much going on here. The music, yes, by Roger Edens with lyrics by Leonard Gersh. It sold me. On Funny Face, right away. As Nathaniel was saying, the mission statement, it definitely worked on me, paved the way for me not to get caught up in some of the quibbles that we did go on to discuss in our review. Yeah. So a great choice and was almost my choice. It was, in fact, the first sequence I thought of. Some other ones to throw out as honorable mentions, Bonjour Paris, that sequence from Funny Face. The moment you touched on, Josh, how do you shave in there from Charade really was one of the biggest delights of the marathon. I mentioned a couple times when you walked down Main Street with me from On the Town, Vera Ellen and Gene Kelly, and kind of a throwaway moment, but one that really stuck with me because of just how, I suppose, emotional it was in a film that is otherwise so absurd. That moment late in On the Town with Lucy Schmieler, where Gene Kelly says, you know, somewhere in the world, there's a right girl for every boy. That's a tells great her, scene yeah, we didn't get her, into. You're a nice girl, Lucy. This movie has gone so overboard in making her a laughingstock. Yes. And I get it. That's kind of the comedy of the time. She has a weird voice. She's not conventionally attractive, certainly. And they are having a laugh at just how ugly she is. And you think, okay, this is... Again, a relic of its time. Yeah. But it culminates in a really heartfelt and genuine way that they pulled off somehow. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it comes out of nowhere, totally unexpected and really a beautiful touch. So Think Pink may not be my number one choice, but I did go with a sequence from Funny Face for my favorite scene. And it is the fashion photo shoot 
that we see in Paris. And there's one moment in particular for me. It's when she's coming down those steps in that elegant dress and Fred Astaire is telling her to stop so he can get the picture he wants. But she is enjoying the moment so much and the dress she's wearing and where she's at that she says, I don't want to stop. I like it. Take the picture, she says, and just keeps going. And he eventually does flash the photo. I think there's a decent objective case to be made that that photo shoot is what you show to an alien who comes to you and says, I want to understand Stanley Donnan in one sequence, that or Think Pink. This one's definitely in the top three or five with this alien. Of course, Josh, I know you were thinking it. Pantheon rules apply. There's no singing in the ring. Okay. Okay. Good. But whether or not it's the best summation of his entire body of work or not, it's for me the best summation of this marathon. I think within that sequence, the range and charm of Hepburn is on full display with very little dialogue, obviously, overall. It's mostly a physical performance. It's a microcosm for the kind of depth we see into For the Road. I think about that moment where they kind of recreate Anna Karenina by the train. That's something that only an actress with her supreme talent could actually execute in that moment. We get in that whole scene the joy, the sadness, the wonder, everything in between. And of course, it's Don and staging these immaculate photos with all this extravagance, right? The costumes, the various interior and exterior spaces and all the design elements that contribute to the mise-en-scene. And then the freeze frame we get at the end of each one and the different colors that come in over the top and the different exposures we see. And finally, the key part, the exuberance of it. That's what I associate with Donnan the most. I don't want to stop. I like it. Take the picture is something I can imagine Donnan saying to his cinematographer at least once on every set. Well, and that's also a wonderful example of Hepburn's quality as a star. It's that it's an example of how she holds her elegance. She can wear that dress like yeah. a model would. And she does. But she doesn't have to. Like, she's not depending on that for the glamour or the allure. It's, again, deflating the the fashion in a way that makes her approachable, that makes her seem like a real person, someone who would be fun to hang out with, who also manages, is able to pull off a dress like that. That brings us to our final fizzy category, the award for best picture. I think we kind of know not only where I might be heading, but we know what path Nathaniel is going down as well. Let's hear from him. My best picture has to be Two for the Road. Fizz is fun, and I genuinely don't want to undervalue what the other films in this marathon bring to the table. But Two for the Road is the one that's waiting to be revisited, to be appreciated even further for its screenplay, enjoyed for its editorial flourishes, and admired for its performances. So it's not even that it's not Fizz. It's simply that my experience watching it was so rich that it cannot be denied. Thanks for another great marathon, guys. So here we are agreeing once again. It's fitting to end this marathon. I did go with Two for the Road as well. And you heard a lot of the reasons why I am so enamored with this movie. I wanted to share someone else's opinion, someone you might even respect a little bit more than me, Josh. It's Mark Harris, because when I was thinking about this film and I mentioned how it felt like a vanguard, one of the last things I did before... I came up here to record. I was grabbing a bite to eat, and I was thinking about how, again, this film felt so audacious and bold, like it was taking risks for its time. And I had to remind myself, well, what year was it made in the 60s? And it was 67. And I thought, well, 67 is those films, those pictures at a revolution that Harris wrote about in his book that were taking all those kinds of chances. I know it wasn't one of the main films he focused on. I read the book, but surely it had to be mentioned 
as a film that was in the same grouping with films maybe like Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate as far as being a little bit transgressive for its time. And so I Googled it thinking, well, maybe maybe I'll find the appendix for the book and at least be able to verify that he wrote about it. I never did verify whether or not it's in that book or not, but Mark Harris wrote quite brilliantly, as you would expect, about this film for filmcomment.com. In 2017, he revisited films from 1967 on their 50-year anniversary, and he had some really great lines about Two for the Road and what makes it so special. He said, in terms of the romance and how real it felt, maybe not to you, but to me and definitely to Mark Harris, he says, of course, Finney and Hepburn fell for each other during production. How could they not? During a scene with her, Finney said later, my mind knew I was acting, but my heart didn't, and my body certainly didn't. I won't discuss it more because of the degree of intimacy involved. That was Finney. The chemistry between the two is unmistakable, Harris writes, and perhaps at its most powerful during the scenes when you're wondering whether Mark and Joanna should stay together at all. A counter to your point about the Mancini score, he says Donnan gives their dilemma a great glossy coat from the gorgeous animated opening credits by 007 genius Maurice Binder to what may be the most melancholy romantic theme Henry Mancini ever composed. And then on its poignancy, he says under Donnan's steady hand, Two for the Road does what only a Hollywood movie can do. It convinces you that two beautiful movie stars tooling through France in a car are just like us. It's everybody's marriage that's on trial in this film. If you've ever failed to let a fight go or said one thing too many or kept silent rather than apologize, you're likely to recognize a bit of yourself in the shards of the Wallaces. The point about how they're just like us, the scene that I think does that so well is when they are forced to stay in the Shishi Hotel and have to kind of dodge around the fact that they can't afford to totally. eat in the restaurant. I mean, that and was just charged for it anyway. It's just a great sequence. It really yeah, is. So fun. So two for the road, my choice, maybe Mark Harris's choice, if indeed he was participating in the marathon. Nathaniel's pick, I know it's not your choice though, Josh. And you know what? It's also not the choice of another guest we have. I teased it last week that my daughter Sophie has been watching all of these films with me. The first film spotting marathon any of my children have fully participated in and she wanted to play along and weigh in with her choice for best picture i'm sophie kempinar and my award for best picture goes to funny face i was sucked in as soon as the bundle of pink fabric hits the camera during the opening number it sets the tone for the whole movie fun whimsical and vibrant that coupled with an excellent lead performance from audrey hepburn led to an experience where to quote my dad I couldn't wait to rewatch it as I was watching it. So there's my daughter quoting me, quoting Sam Van Hogren, but that's fine. We'll go with it. <laughs> it all goes round and round. Well, I knew Sophie was sharp, but this seals the deal. I mean, she yeah. she got the pick right. Funny face is the best picture of this marathon. I'll admit, I I probably enjoyed Charade as much while watching it, but I think for me, Funny Face has those musical production numbers that just are going to put it over the top if you're comparing the two. Uh, not only what I've already mentioned in these awards, but how about On How to Be Lovely, that satirical duet with Hepburn and Kate Thompson? I think that one really is crucial because it undercuts some of the movie's fashion fascination yeah, that, that we're skeptical that about. That's number. great. Ira and George Gershwin's He Loves and She Loves. I don't think we talked about this when we reviewed it at all, but this is where Hepburn and Astaire are at an outdoor wedding photo shoot. And they dance their way across a stream by lightly stepping onto a floating raft. I mean, here's another almost over-the-top Dawn in Touch. Could have been a pick for Physia's scene as well. So Funny Face, it's just stuffed with production numbers, most of them quite delightful. Dawn in 
of course, will forever be known for co-directing Singing in the Rain. But I do think Funny Face has, you know, it deserves a place in the top tier musicals conversation. Well, it's my runner up, certainly for this marathon, a film I did enjoy and has so many of those great Don and moments and touches. That's our marathon. Our thanks again to Sophie, to Nathaniel, of course, for all of his insights and launching all of these conversations. We hope you enjoyed this marathon, whether you are following along or not and able to watch every film. We do have another marathon coming up. We don't have the date set exactly for when it will commence, but we're going to take a look at the work of Joseph von Sternberg and Marlena Dietrich, that collaboration. You can find more information about all of our marathons, including listening back to all of these Don and conversations at filmspotting.net and just click on marathons at the top of the page. Josh, that's the marathon and that's the show. If you still want more, check out our show archives. You can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005 at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. What is the best film of 1979, Alien or Apocalypse Now? Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's hosted by critics Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. They examine how classic films inspire and inform modern movies. So in part one, the roundtable takes a deep dive into a classic film, looks at its legacy. Then in part two, they compare and contrast it with a modern successor. What do I mean? Well, right now they're pairing Roman Polanski's Chinatown and David Robert Mitchell's Under the Silver Lake. Mitchell, of course, the director of 2014's It Follows. I don't think either of us have seen Silver Lake. We haven't yet, but I know in addition to playing in some theaters, it is available on demand and maybe streaming on some platforms as well. So it's homework that you can do if you're so inclined. Next Picture Show drops every Tuesday at midnight. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get a Film Spotting t-shirt or any other merch that you might want at filmspotting.net slash shop. If you want to connect with me or Adam on social media, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And to get the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, subscribe at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson are con artists in The Hustle. It's the reheat, to use the parlance of one Josh Larson, of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Palms, starring Diane Keaton and Pam Greer, who, along with others, form a cheerleading squad at their retirement community. We also have Tolkien, which is, as you'd suspect, a Tolkien biopic, and Pokemon, Detective Pikachu, Sam is ordering us to make our gun-to-the-head pick. He's got the gun to our heads. We have to choose. He's Sam's got an itchy trigger finger. This isn't that difficult either. I, I would still go see The Hustle, even though it's been delayed a long time. And Tolkien sounds, you know, I'm not a big biopic fan, but that's one no. I check out. I've heard relatively <laughs> really? good things so far. Palms, no interest. Detective Pikachu, clearly no interest. I mean, if it was just those two, that's a gun-to-the-head pick. Okay. Well... The one of the four I'm going to end up seeing yes, I know is this. Detective Pikachu. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. My two youngest sons got me. But I'm with you that if I was otherwise choosing, of course it would be The Hustle. Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson, breezy comedy. I mean, even if the laughs don't really land, it's probably the best bet. Out in limited release here in Chicago, we have meeting Gorbachev. Werner Herzog meets the former Russian prime minister. I've seen this movie and do recommend it. Maybe we can talk about it at a later point. Want to note that Herzog is around 
at the Music Box. Depending on when you're hearing this, check out the Music Box's website here in Chicago, or we'll put a link in the show notes for this episode at filmspotting.net. But he's going to be at the Music Box to do a Q&A, I think, at one or two of these screenings. And you can't miss an opportunity to see Werner Herzog in the flesh. We also have a new one from Mary Heron. Charlie says about three women sentenced to life imprisonment for their involvement in the Manson murders. Long Day's Journey in Tonight is out. I'm guessing this isn't Eugene O'Neill. It comes to us from director B. Gan. It's a follow-up to his 2015 debut, Kaylee Blues. Zhang Yimou has a new film out, the director of Hero and House of Flying Daggers. It's called Shadow, about a king who attempts to lead his displaced people out of exile. So a lot of interesting titles here available in Chicago and select cities around the country. Next week, though, we're going to be talking about John Wick 3, Parabellum, and sharing our top five Keanu moments. Again, if you've got some favorite Keanu scenes, we'd love to hear them. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.